Welcome to Tone Benders, a sound designer's podcast. Here are your hosts, Dustin, Timothy, and Renee. Welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Renee Coronado, and with me today, as always, is Timothy Muirhead. Hey, Tim. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing great. It's been a while. Yeah, we. Uh, I guess the last two episodes were uh, solo flights, first for you and then for me. Yeah. But it's uh, good to be on the line with you again, finally. That's right. It's time. <laughs> <laughs> the band's back together. Right. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. I am at Renee underscore Coronado. Tim is at Azimuth Audio. And Dustin is at Pulse Train. Let's do some comments. Okay, excellent. Uh, first comment we got today is from Brand Flugan via Twitter. And he says, hey, at Tonebenders, I would like to get some tips about how to create your own template suited for post-production. So, Renee, you got uh, anything to say about that? Yeah, I think to some degree it depends on if you're working alone on, on your own um, as a freelancer or if you're working in a team. If you're working in a team, you have to coordinate your template amongst everyone else. If you're working alone, I think the important things with regards to templates are to make your your general uh, repetitive tasks easier and go ahead and program them in. So if there's a certain compressor and EQ combo that you always use on dialogue, you know, set up channels that do that kind of thing. I also have a lot of routing built into my template that's got uh, prints and stems ready to go so I don't have to redo all of the routing. It's super easy for me to do a print, and I'm running in Pro Tools, but it's super easy for me to do a print of just the sound effect stem or just the you know music stem or anything like that because of how my template is already set up. I don't have to worry about routing that as needed. It's, it's already all the way there. And that's important for me because with my templates... The workflows that are facilitated are the workflows that happen. So because I have stems all the way routed out all the time, my client doesn't have to request stems from me specifically in order to get them. If I feel like I, it would be best to send the client stems, then I'll just print all the stems and they'll, and they'll be off and it's not a big deal. That's definitely something that I've found with, with templates in general is that the things that you set your template up to do are the things that you will get done and the things that you ignore are the things that just never happen. Yeah, I have uh, an interesting, well, it's interesting to me, uh, template. So Renee does a lot of mixing. I do mostly uh, editing and design work. So what I like to do is when I'm working on a series, after the first couple episodes, an animated series, a lot of times they'll have repeated sequences or you know, whenever a guy has a specific transformation or a specific gun, and as you build those over the first couple episodes, I build into my template after the show would end on the timeline, a bunch of markers with the basic builds of all the repeating effects and repeating motifs, sound motifs in the show. And then that way, when I'm editing the next episode, I can go to those, grab them at the end of the timeline. They're all on numbers, marker numbers, and pull them in and then resync it up to the exact motions of that show, but have the general uh, palette of sounds ready to go in the session. And it uh, lets me speed up the system of grabbing sounds and building stuff because especially for animated series work, you have a limited amount of time to cut the show. So the most, the more prep you can do ahead of time of having things pre-built and pre-ready to go while still giving the mixer the latitude to change things around is really helpful and speeds things up a lot. So you prefer to have all the individual elements that make up the unique sounds split out and brought in as split out tracks. 
it depends on the sound. There's certainly some things that after the first episode, I'll go into the stems of the mix and grab the uh, the full build. Yeah. And the, the mixer would prefer that. But there's a lot of things like, for instance, uh, I worked on a series where the main character had this gun that kind of shot out of his arm and became robotic. But sometimes it took one second to for that transformation to take place. And sometimes it would zoom in on a little piece of it and then zoom back out and it would be like a four second transformation. So it wasn't exactly the same transformation every time, but it was always the same uh, palette of sounds. Right. So I would have that, the general sounds for the build ready to go. And if it was the exact same one from previous episode, I would grab that from the stems. But if it wasn't, then uh, I would just pull that in and recut and finagle I love that word, finagle. Uh, finagle it to fit the pictures of that particular episode. But yeah, I'm working on another series right now uh, called Paw Patrol, which I just found out in the United States is the number one rated show for the very, very... The advertisers love this demographic. Males age two to five. Huh. Yeah, I can't even believe they keep that demographic. But yes, it was the number one show in the United States for males age two to five. Wow. Anyway, but in every episode, there is a specific transformation sequence where their little dog houses transform into their vehicles that they go to save the day in. And those we have stemmed out and ready to go. Uh, so we just kind of pop those in because they're basically the same from, well, different dogs do it in different episodes. But when dog B does it, it's basically the same transformation. So those are all ready to go. I know the show goes from one hour to uh, 23 minutes. And then so at 30 minutes, I have the first marker of uh, sound effects, pre-built sound effects. And then I think for that show, I think I have like 70 pre-built sound effects sequences that I can grab from. Yeah. Something that I've found too, with regards to templates is I'm not afraid to create a new template for a specific run of projects. If there's only, uh, I had a, a cart, an episodic cartoon called Bolopolis where, you know, there was these set characters that appeared in every episode and there was this set. They were, there were basically three set locations that would occur. Mm -hmm. So my template already had all the audio for the locations, the ambient audio in place. So yeah, that was consistent sure. across the whole series in situations like that where you can look ahead and say, hey, I've got this many things coming down the line. At a certain point, a threshold crosses where you can just say, you know what, I might as well just make a new template for this project and put audio in that template and just roll with it. Yeah, I have a specific template that matches each series that I'm working on yeah. that you build. And, and when you finish, like, you can't really do it for episode one because you're starting from scratch. But as you finish each episode and you see, okay, this is going to be something that will be used again, or this new character that has a, you know, rocket shooting out of its feet, that will, will be used again. And you just keep building and adding to that template. You add it onto the end of the timeline and it just saves so much time to be prepped like that because the, especially with animation, sound is the last step. The mix is the last step in every project basically, but uh, with animation, inevitably things go long. And they ask for uh, reshoots at the last moment. And the, just the audio portion gets shrunk and shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. And the schedule says you have two weeks to cut it. But that rarely actually happens that you get the full two weeks. So the more prep you can do ahead of time, the more uh, bacon saving you can do on yourself. So you're not there till 4 a.m. the night before the mix trying to get it prepped in time. What's your philosophy with regards to plugins in your templates? Like how... How deep do you implement your plugins in your templates? 
well, I have obviously the delivery tracks that I have set up. So if there's 20 sound effects tracks and 10 stereo sound effects tracks and their footstep tracks and everything. And then at the bottom of my template, I have what I just called design tracks that I have a few plugins just preloaded up, but also that's where I would light up new plugins if I want to try and do something different that's not just kind of standard. And then I would, after I'd render those effects and then pop them up onto the main sound effect tracks up above. Is that what you're asking? Yeah, to some degree. And also with regards to like presets within the plugins and automation within the plugins inside of your template, like as a starting point. Like, for instance, I used to work on a show called Bakugan Battle Brawlers. It was an animated series about aliens that half the time they were in tiny little balls, like the size of a playing dice. And then the other half of the time they were humongous monsters. So uh, I built into uh, Altverb the presets of what their sounds like were when they were little, and we would add like little, little tight, super tight reverbs, and then sounds for huge things. Now, most of the reverbs and stuff were done in the mix, but there were some things that I, I built actually into the effects. So th- those presets were pre-made and just saved in Altverb. I'm, I, I guess I'm not really sure exactly what you're asking me. So, Well, the reason I ask that is I, it's something that I've really struggled with personally on, on my templates because my templates are, are only so personalized, again, because any session I kick open here has to be able to be opened and readable and discernible by other engineers in my facility. And so, you know, we all had this big internal debate over, you know, how much to lock into the templates, how much should you rely on with regards to we're using this compressor with these settings and this EQ with, you know, with this kind of broad starting point in every session that we kick up. And especially with regards to design, the specific thing that I try and make myself not do is fall into ruts. And so, you know, say you have, you know, a Mondo mod with the pulsing gate on it, you know, that it's real easy to just jump to it and do it. Well, if you have that in your template, what well, you're going to go to that sound all the time. Yeah. And so that, that was really the question I'm asking is like, how, where do you draw that line? Like how deeply do you implement those things into your templates? I don't have v- very much in the session. I have a few things, but you're right. I like the idea of going, okay, this is a new thing. I have to design this sound. How am I going to do it? And then just kind of opening up the plugins window and roaming through it and going, oh, what about that? That'll be good and pick that up and try it. Right. So you're right. I don't have like a ton of preloaded plugins. I, I like to kind of roam around and find stuff like you'll, you'll have an idea in your head, but while you're looking to go grab that plugin, you'll stumble across another one and oh, I'll try that. And I find just the idea, just the process of going to actually load the plugin can trigger other ideas when you're scrolling through to go get it. Yeah, that's how I am too. And my argument was definitely for the super minimal approach. And I only got so far <laughs> with it, but you know, our templates have, EQs and compressors and, you know, on the dialogue tracks, you know, they have DSers and this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, I'm not doing, uh, we, I don't get that deep with the edit sessions I'm in. They, they deal with that in the edits in, yeah. in the mix. Sorry. So what they, I give them my tracks and they're all specifically named and specifically color coded. And then they import them onto their tracks that already have all of the compressors and everything on them. So I'm involved in that stage in that we discuss how it's going to happen and what they're going to do, but I don't actually load them up in my session. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Cool. All right. What's next? Okay. Our next question is again via Twitter. This one is, uh, I'm hard to pronounce here. It's Ralph Fierl Dienzel. I'm I'm sorry for massacring that there, but he asks, uh, how do you decide which stereo miking setup and mic spacing to use? 
you know, with me, I almost never record an XY anymore. What I found is if I'm recording in stereo, there's three things, right? Is it a static source, uh, like a door? Um, or is it something moving like a car by? Or is it um, an ambient effect where you're just you're just trying to catch a super broad field? If it's an ambient effect, I tend to go with either ORTF or spaced pair. And like top of my microphone buying list right now is a pair of Omnis. And I'd love to get four so I can do quad. But some of the recordings I've heard lately that are spaced pair Omni are just amazing for ambient, you know, wind blowing through grass kind of stuff. And so... I really like that. I'm not trying to, you know, paint some specific center image. I'm trying to make something sound super wide and super flat. And I find that spaced pair cardioid and Omni and ORTF really kind of lend me that picture the best. And even if an event does happen, you know, in front of the mic, in front of the Omni, uh, I'm sorry, in front of the ORTF setup, you never like feel like it goes away. Like it doesn't disappear in the center channel or anything. It's, it sounds beautiful still. It's just that it sounds so much wider. And so the vast majority of all of my ambient recordings get done in space pair or, or TF. The more spot effects, the things that need to be a little tighter, but you're still recording them in stereo, I'll tend to go MS specifically because with MS, the advantage that MS has over XY is that you're aiming a capsule directly at your source, which I like. Obviously, the disadvantage is the uh, the decoding side and the monitoring side. It's more difficult to monitor MS. There's just more switches you got to throw, and you got to have higher end gear to monitor MS. But to me, the payoff is worth it. So if I'm recording, you know, a static thing, machine or door or something that's not moving around, but it's not an ambient thing. It's like a it's a prop. It's a real thing. Then I will uh, I'll go MS before I'll go XY or ORTF even. So. For listeners, last episode, we had Gordon Hempton on who uses a Neumann uh, dummy head to record. Do you have any experience with that, Renee? Never. Um, I've never recorded with a dummy head. Yeah, neither have I. I think that the uh, cost of entry to just get a hold of it is a bit prohibitive and why it might not be used as much because he swears by it. And uh, the one thing that just would intimidate me about that is the lack of a dead spot to hide... So sounds you don't really want. Sure. He talked a bit about that in the podcast, but uh, that's something that I really try and take advantage of when I'm recording stuff to try and angle things so that you can reject sounds as much as accept sounds. And uh, so it, it would freak me out not having that ability. That's true. But in a, in a stereo context, there's definitely a lot less of that. I mean, if you're putting two mics up or more, then you're trying to record more space. And so, you know, your ability to reject anything in, in a stereo concept is uh, limited at best anyway. So a lot of those things that, that come into play with the dummy head are, are still basically there in most stereo setups. The dummy head still scares me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds great, though. The, he, Gordon was uh, kind enough to send us some sounds. If you listen to the intro and outro of that and uh, a couple other places throughout the podcast of uh, stuff that he recorded and it just sounds so perfect there's one uh recording of a pond and you can hear something just jump out of the pond like a little fish movement or something and it sounds like it's right an inch in front of your nose it's a really great way to record i just a little intimidated by it right now you know one of the things that i want to test here in the near future would be spaced omni pair alone versus spaced omni pair with a jekyll disc in between or with some sort of mm -hmm. something in between them 
that'll give you a similar effect to the dummy head where it'll shade your frequencies on one side or the other. I want to see, I just want to A-B those and see which one I like better for the recordings of wind and grass and that type of thing. Are you going to make your own Jacqueline disc? I guess I'm going to have to. Yeah. I've seen a couple web pages where that give kind of basic instructions. It doesn't seem insanely complicated. Yeah, I don't think it's rocket science. And so I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it a swing here pretty soon, I think. Nice. Okay, our final question for today is from Magic Room Met. There, that's a nice easy one to say for me. Nice. <laughs> uh, at the Tone Benders, I'd be interested in the workflow after field recordings, editing metadata library softwares. And uh, I think we can, the best thing we can do for you is direct you to episode four, where we had Paul, say it for me, Renee. Paul Verostek. I always say his last name incorrectly. Uh, we had him on and he's, uh, he runs his own sound effects library and he, we got real deep into those topics. But something we might want to mention real quick is we've been receiving a lot of emails and uh, Facebook messages about the lack of the first few episodes being available on the iTunes feed. And uh, the best way we can recommend for you to get those first episodes is you can go to tonebenders.net. And if you go to the uh, earliest episode listed and click there, within that page, you can click earlier episodes and get back. And there's also always our YouTube page, the Tone Benders podcast, that has every episode available. So you can find Paul Verostek's episode at either of those places. Yep. Google's actually a good way to jump back to those earlier episodes, too. If you just Google Tone Benders Paul Verostek, you'll find it that way, too. Yeah, there's that way, too, if you want to be all simple about it. <laughs> Cool. So those were some great comments. There's a little bit of news floating around the uh, the podcast lately. Tim, what do you got? Well, first off, Dallas Buyers Club, who we had uh, the sound designer on a few episodes ago, was just nominated for Best Picture Oscar. So congratulations. Yeah, huge for them. And you know, I think Matthew McConaughey already won the Golden Globe for Best Actor. I think he might have already won the Oscar, too. He seems to be the prohibitive favorite. Although Leonardo DiCaprio, I'll say that strangely, Leonardo DiCaprio <laughs> is getting some uh, love now, apparently. It's not really something I pay a lot of attention to, but it's couldn't be uh, more amazing. Actually, a quasi friend of mine, one of my friend's roommates, just got nominated for the Oscar for score. He co-wrote the score for her. Nice. And yeah, he was like the kind of skinny kid that was the, my friend's roommate that we kind of ignored. And now he's like a superstar. So, That's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, congrats to uh, Martin Pinsonal and and the, the whole crew over there that their film is is getting the acclaim that it that it so richly deserves because that film is awesome. Yeah, so Martin was uh, episode fourteen. So go back and listen to that to hear all about how they did that movie. And uh, and in other news, our own Rene Coronado just announced a new sound effects line to complement his previous Echo Collective. This is Echo Collective Fields. So this is more ambient recordings libraries? Is that how it's going to work? Yeah, this is a lot of surround sound stuff of some places and some locations that I have unique access to. And so, yeah, we'll be building on that a little bit more in the future. The Echo Collective proper tends to be more studio-based sounds, more stuff that we're dreaming up specifically for, you know, smaller scale uh, type things. And, you know, my crowds one on this one is pretty epic. So It's actually in, uh, how many seats are in the Dallas Stadium? Like 18,000? Yeah, 18,000. And yeah, I, so, I recorded entire games from all over, you know, because I have, I have full access. I have a press pass there. So I would bring my rig and, you know, we'd be up in the 
we'd be up on the camera platform, which you need a credential to get onto. So I recorded several games from the camera platform. I got games from down on the penalty boxes. I got games from up in the nosebleed seats. I got games from underneath the bleachers down at an event level, um, out in the hallway. I did an entire game out in the hallway. So yeah, quite a bit of just whatever. And for those who maybe aren't as familiar with, th- these were all professional hockey games that you were recording. Yep. And the the great thing about hockey games is that they don't play any music during the actual game. Where professional basketball, there's just music nonstop. Yeah. Well, and honestly, I have that same kind of access during the basketball games. But yeah, I could go record an entire basketball game stem to stern and not have one ounce of usable audio because uh, the PA is just going the entire time. It never stops. Yeah, so the, the NHL games offer a unique opportunity. So the, there's stadium crowds that could could be used for any kind of sporting event or theater or a concert. Like, they're just huge, big cheers and such. Yeah. And great. lots of different emotions. Uh, that particular library is something I'm definitely looking forward to getting my hands nice. on. And then there's the awesome <laughs> rodeo library. Yeah, man. That one looks amazing. So I um, I guess we used to get hired out by the company that owned one of the rodeos around here. And they got me a press pass one day to that as well. And uh, this was 10 years ago at least. And in the intervening time, they've changed the show dramatically to where it's pop rock music going through the PA and they're in their bumping the whole time. It's very like a basketball show now. Um, but at the time it was a live band with an old timey announcer. And... It was very, very rodeo. <laughs> um, and I've actually, that's that library I've sold a couple times. That library is actually in Dallas Buyers Club in the rodeo scenes there. And it's in some other films as well. So there seemed to be enough demand for it that, that I packaged it with some recordings that I made of one of my voice talent friends, Horse Ranch, of all of her horses. And we just spent the whole day out there and stampeded horses around it. It was great fun. And so those two are kind of packaged together, and those were recorded a long time ago. So they were recorded on a DAT machine at 48K, but they still sound amazing. I, lo- I love those sounds. I use them all the time. If the sound's good, it's good. doesn't matter what it was recorded on. Yeah. So if people want to go visit that, it's what's the website? ecfields.com or echocollectivefields.com, either one. And is that going to be up on a sound effect as well? Yes, it's already up on a sound effect. It's already effect. up there? Yeah, Excellent. there's a little so... interview I've already done with Esbjorn up there. Oh, great. So we got some one-stop shopping right there. Cool, man. Cool. So uh, now we're going to move on to a cool little piece that Renee's made for us on mic matching. Um, And actually, I haven't created a a fully produced out piece. What we're going to do is I'm going to discuss what we what I did to uh, to match some of these mics. And we'll just kind of discuss these in real time here. So the basic setup of what I did was I took a few of the small diaphragm condensers that I had in the studio. And the whole thing that prompted this was a question on somebody on social sound design went up and said, hey, why can't I just take a cheap mic and EQ it to sound like an expensive mic? And in my brain, my general answer is, well, expensive mics 
have different kinds of harmonic distortion. It's more than just an EQ curve. It's more than just a frequency plot that gives a mic its character. It's the slew rate. It's how fast it reacts to transients. It's the off-axis uh, stuff that goes on there. There's all kinds of onboard circuitry that happens. Even with the, with the SM57, it's got some EQ circuits built into it before the signal ever comes out the XLR jack that's there specifically to compensate for the resonances in the capsules. And all of those capsules have their own resonances and they all have their own characteristics. So it's a lot more than just EQ. But given that, I was like, okay, well, how much more than EQ is it, right? How close can you get with EQ? And so what I did was I took the gold standard, which is this Shep CMC6 MK4, and I took a, the venerable SM81 that I had around here. I have the Sennheiser MKH50, which after this test, I think it's my favorite mic in the world now. <laughs> um, and then I took the SM57 just as a, as a brutality test to see how close we could get. This is not a comprehensive test, and this is not a comprehensive shootout, but I think the principles that you see in this will extend all the way out to a range of other mics. You know, what the mic that I use a lot is my Line Audio CM3, which I didn't have on me at the time that I decided to record the test, but I figured it would be better to go ahead and record the test without it than to wait and not get it done. So I had a moment and I did it. The way that I mounted them was I took the four mics and I put a bunch of rubber bands around them. I'll put some pictures up on the on the Tonebender's site so that you can see exactly what the mount looked like. But generally, it was four mics with a bunch of rubber bands around them, and then I took a bunch of pencils and stuck them in between the mics in both directions. So I had kind of a brick of four mics with a little bit of air in between each capsule. That's important because these uh, small diaphragm condensers have side-vented ports that they use to reject the rear axis. Those side ports are the only things really that keep them from being omni mics. So it was important to have them clear all the way around the edges of each mic. So that's kind of why I shoved the pencils in between each of them to give them at least a pencil width of distance between each one. And then from there, I took them all and I plugged them into my four channel John Hardy M1 preamp. And I blew pink noise through my speakers in the control room. And I adjusted my preamps per so that each of them was registering basically the same peak level in. So my preamps were set differently per mic in order to allow my input level to be set the same. Obviously, there are more scientific ways to do this, but that was kind of the way that I approached it. What ended up happening was on my SM57, my John Hardy was wide open. Like there was, it would not go up any higher. And so I used that as my, as my baseline for setting the rest of them. Because even wide open, the 57's output is so low that you're not going to blow it out. I ended up, you know, right at a proper recording volume with the, with the pre wide open. So with that one was wide open, I, I think my SM81 was about noon or one o'clock. And then both my Sheps and my MKH50 we're at about 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock, somewhere in that area. So they have much higher output gain, obviously. Uh, so the first little recording I'll play you is of just the pink noise going through each one because I think the pink noise illustrates pretty well what's happening in each mic. This is the Sheps. This is the MKH-50, unaltered. 
This is the SM81, unaltered. This is the SM57, unaltered. Okay. So you can see how that 57 sounds a lot honkier than the others by yeah, a lot. Yeah, for sure. I, I always find the pink noise really, it really illustrates the difference between mics. I've, I've done this test before in the past with pink noise, and I just, I really like what it reveals. If I play the pink noise unaltered fast, you'll, you'll really hear them back to back. So here's pink noise unaltered fast. That's the same order there. That's Sheps, MKH50, SM81, SM57. I'll play it one more time. So clear shifts, clear differences in the sounds of each of these mics. The way that I matched them all up was I used Isotope's Ozone 5. Okay. Uh, and I used the matching algorithm on that. And the matching algorithm on that is super powerful because you can really crank it all the way up. And so my objective was, my broad objective was to match each of those mics to the Sheps because the Sheps is the most expensive of the four by a mile. So... I used the recording of the pink noise on the Sheps to um, be my target print. And then I source printed each of the individual mics and matched them up. And if I play pink noise matched, here's what my pink noise was able to sound like. This is the Sheps. This is the MKH-50 matched. This is the SM-81 matched. This is the SM-57 matched. So I got them pretty stinking close. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Uh, for people who obviously can't see this while they're listening to the podcast, even the waveforms were quite different on the different mics. And uh, in the match, it really pulled them together. They all looked very, very similar. Same profiles. Yeah. They're they're not 1,000% matched. No, they're obviously. awfully no. close. They're, that's better than I was expecting. Yeah, especially the 57. And if you would have seen the curve on the 57 that the ozone threw up, it was amazing because it was just a massive bump at the high and low end and all these weird contortions happening in the mid-range. On the other two mics, it was doing a lot of weird different mid-range stuff as well, but there wasn't just these wholesale 50 dB jackups on either end of the spectrum like there were on the 57. But if you do that to a 57, you can get pretty close there. The other way that I really, really like auditioning microphones is with acoustic guitar. And the reason is because acoustic guitar will show you transients, it'll show you um, dynamic range, it'll show you uh, your whole frequency spectrum. It's just a very, very good way, I think, to evaluate a mic quickly. Here's my acoustic guitar unaltered. This is the Sheps. This is the MKH-50, unaltered. This is the SM-81, unaltered. This is the SM57, unaltered. So in the unaltered version of these, the things that stick out to me, and definitely chime in here, Tim, on what you hear, 
it, it turns into a mini mic shootout anyway when you do this. Yeah. Of the four of them, my favorite's the MKH-50 by a mile on the acoustic guitar. The SM81 sounds very SM81-y. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, the 57 sounds remarkably good when you level match it against the others. Uh, it still sounds like a 57, but ne not necessarily in a bad way. It seems like an entirely viable mic for something like that. What do you think? Well, the 57 I found didn't have as much kind of dynamic range as the other ones. It seemed a little uh, more compressed. But you're right, the uh, the Sennheiser really sang there. That sounded great. Yeah, the thing that I've, that I've been finding throughout all this, and I record this podcast, my voice is on the MKH-50 right now, and it has been for several episodes in a row now. I just love how clean it sounds, and yet still how big it sounds. It's got just a bigness to it that, that I'm not finding in the other mics, including the Sheps, that I really, really enjoy. I'd like it quite a bit. And yeah, the, definitely the dynamic SM57... It, it just reacts to transients much slower, and you can hear that so clearly in the acoustic guitar. Um, let me play the acoustic guitar unaltered fast. So that's all f just the first couple notes on all four of them. Yeah, yeah, it's just a, it's a tighter clip, so you can hear them one, one against the other. Um, so again, super, super different sounds. The way they attack the transients is very different. Obviously, their tonal characteristics is very different. So if I match them up, and, and what I, the other thing that I found was if I tried to go with the exact match that I used from the pink noise, which is what a lot of the mic modeling software will do, it didn't give me nearly as good of a match as if I went ahead and redid the matching process per clip, right? So instead of using the exact curves that I got from the pink noise, in order to match these, what I did was I used the curves. I, I created new curves based on the acoustic guitar recording. So, Renee, actually, I'm just going to stop you for one sec. Sure. Just go through the, the actual, for those people who have not used Ozone 5, like it, you're, you're loading up the sound in Ozone, and then there's an actual match button that you're using? Yeah, so Ozone's EQ has a match section, right? And the way that it works is you take snapshots and you can name the snapshots within the plugin. So you'll tell it to capture a snapshot, you'll play the sound into that snapshot, and then you can just double-click the snapshot and name it, you know, Shep's Acoustic Guitar. Then you'd find your next clip, play that sound into the same plugin. Um, while it's capturing a snapshot and name that. Then in another tab over, you can set this snapshot as your target and this snapshot as your source. Um, and then it'll draw a new curve. And then within that new curve, you have controls that adjust the amount of EQ. So in other words, the amount of gain that it adds or subtracts per the different curve and also the, uh, the smoothness. So it can be super rigid and jaggedy and way gained up and jacked up. Or it can just be a gentle, broad kind of nudge towards one sound or another. What I ended up doing in here was keeping my resolution um, relatively high. In other words, keeping my smoothness way, way down. And I did end up jacking my gain up quite a bit until it sounded good to me by ear. And so, yeah, I did that per each one. And when I did the match off of the curves that I got from the pink, pink noise, noise, it sounded good, but it didn't sound as good. 
And so you're all these examples are going just off of what ozone is giving you. You're not doing any further EQ tweaking or anything. No, right? nothing at all. Just yeah. pure straight ozone. Yeah. So the process is very similar to uh, noise reduction when you capture a section of noise and then apply it to the larger chunk of audio. Similar, obviously. Not uh, exactly it's a the similar. Same. It's a similar like user mechanic, but obviously yeah. I think it's mm-hmm. a totally different audio mechanic. Yeah, what the plugin is doing is very different. Obviously, yeah. Okay, so do you want to listen to the uh, matched now? Yeah, so here's the matched ones. And again, I what I did was I went ahead and manually redid the curves per the acoustic guitar recording. So it sounds like this. This is guitar matched. This is the Sheps. This is the MKH-50 matched. This is the SM81, matched. This is the SM57, matched. So I feel like it got pretty close, but it definitely still left a lot of the other parts of the way that the mics sound intact. To me, the uh, the 57 sounded a little tubby and a little slow still, and the uh, MKH-50 still sounded bigger than the <laughs> the Sheps even after being matched. What did you think? Yeah, I, I could feel that or hear that, I guess, uh, as well. But obviously we're trying to match that, but sometimes you want things to be bigger. So, Right. Yeah. And really the question I ask myself is, all right, in the context of a mix, if I had the Sheps here or if I had uh, an SM81 with an EQ match curve on it, in the context of a mix, could I tell the difference? Um, I think it'd be, it's right on that threshold of where I probably wouldn't be able to. Yeah, no, it's definitely, like this is opening my eyes. I did not think that this would come across matching up. Yeah, I was, I was stunned. <laughs> I was so shocked. Uh, so do we, do we, let's play the uh, guitar match fast. Here's the fast one. Yeah, that's impressive. Yeah, and and honestly, the headphones are revealing quite a bit more, because I'm listening to it on the headphones right now. Mm-hmm. They're revealing quite a bit more than the speakers did. If you put that through some speakers in a room, even in really good speakers and really good control room, those differences start melting away real quick. For sure, and once you start adding other sounds in over top to mask those little idiosyncrasies, it, they're going to start disappearing really fast. Yeah, for sure. With regards to where I put placed the mics on the guitar, they were about, I, I specifically wanted to keep it a little bit further away so that I could hear most of the guitar. So I was about three feet away, aimed right at the bottom of the fretboard. Was that you playing the guitar? Yeah. Nice. It's a really nice Taylor. It's a really good guitar we have in here. Cool. For this uh, next test, it was uh, the super high-end, super transienty stuff. And again, this is really a stress test on what the 57 will do with EQ. Uh, I had a bell tree with chimes and I had the mic array probably, I would say, a foot away and aim straight at it. So here's my chimes unaltered. This is the Sheps. This is the MKH-50 unaltered. 
This is the SM81, unaltered. This is the SM57, unaltered. And I gotta be honest, when it's way up high like that, the, the differences start melting away to me anyway, even in the unaltered ones. The 57 sounds a little grittier than the others, but the, but the other three sound pretty similar to my ear there. Yeah, they do. The, like, again, just to give people a sense of the visuals of the sound waves, the, the Sheps has a lot of dynamic range. And when you get down to the SM57, it's quite squashed. Yeah. And, and then the middle two look quite similar. But you're right, this, the sounds, they're all handling it quite well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and here's what, here's what it sounds like when they are matched up. So this is chimes matched. This is the Sheps. This is the MKH-50 matched. This is the SM-81 matched. This is the SM-57, matched. And again, the first three mics, I feel like you can really interchange them without hurting yourself. Yeah, the uh, SM-57, though, you could start hearing a bit of processing or something going on there. Definitely, yeah, it runs out of space. (laughs) Yeah. Last one was my voice. So here's my voice. Unmodeled. This is the microphone matching test. 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 Can we just listen to that for days? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, I only said it the one time, and this has been the true with all of these, is I'm just taking one performance and laying it end to end across the different recordings. Um, Very different sounds there. I think the human voice really reveals a bunch of different things about mics. I think it's on par with acoustic guitar as far as what it does reveal about a mic. Um, I'm just going to play the unaltered one more time. Here's unaltered one more time. This is the microphone matching test. 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 What's funny to me is I can spot that SM81 a mile away. (laughs) Um, and here's the matched version. This is voice matched. This is the microphone matching test. 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 And that blew me away. It's pretty amazing, actually. Like, that blew me away. It's uh, <laughs> it's making me rethink some of my spending choices in the past. <laughs> <laughs> So let's play the voice matched one more time. Here's voice matched. This is the microphone matching test. 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 And then just to further illustrate, here's guitar unaltered fast one more time. And then here's guitar matched fast. Wow. So in the end, what I found was that you can go a long way with EQ on all of these mics. With that said, I still feel like 
so much of your EQ decision is what mic you put up in the first place. Well, yeah, the, what I'm finding is that it, my mind is ha kind of blown actually. <laughs> I yeah, feel I like this shocked. is going against like every textbook I've ever read. And, but the, the three more expensive mics, they all hold up really well and seem, I don't know if interchangeable is the right word. Like there, there's strengths there, but they all seem uh, very equal, I guess. And then the SM57, especially in the chimes, it showed that it couldn't quite keep up with the bigger boys. But, you know, if you're recording your high school band's album and you have no budget, it sure seems like the SM57 is a better option than I ever thought it would be. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing what you can get done with that mic. And I never liked the sound of an SM57. And, and honestly, my opinion is still the same. <laughs> I still don't love the sound of an SM57, but if it's pressed into action, I know that I can EQ it out into such a way that it'll be fine. The other thing that kind of came out of this to me was it was a little bit of a mini microphone shootout to me, and it just cemented in my mind how much I love this MKH-50. Because to me, every time I EQ'd it to match the Sheps, it hurt the sound. <laughs> I liked it much better uh, as a source than I did as a, as something that was trying to emulate something that it wasn't. Yeah, this test doesn't really account for the fact that just some mics are better suited for some tasks than others, and you don't always want something to sound like the Sheps. Right. But it does illustrate that if you do want it to sound like the Sheps, you can get pretty close. This episode is not sponsored by Sheps. <laughs> And I don't think it ever will be this yeah. show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when I when I put this test together, my mind was pretty blown too. You know, and, and that's why I do these things too. It's it's one thing to intellectualize about something and to say, well, this is how it probably should be because this is what I understand of this thing. And it's an entirely other thing to put something to it to a real test and judge with your own ears what exactly you can do with these with the tools that are in front of us. I think it's also a testament to the power of ozone. Maybe this should be sponsored by Isotope. Yes, man, exactly. Ozone, <laughs> ozone came with it. It uh, it matched some mics up for sure. There, I thought. I thought it did an incredible job. Yeah, for sure. I'd be interested to see if any listeners out there want to try the same test with the mics they have on hand and see if they get similar results. I'm sure they will, but like, there's so many mics out there be nice to know which ones it, the ozone really flies with and if there are any out there that it has a hard time with. Yeah. I mean, my general impression based on how far we were able to take the 57 yeah. was that any legit mic will take this type of EQ pretty well. And, you know, to see the EQ curves, they were pretty intense. So would um, you mind doing this test with your iPhone mic? Sure. <laughs> I'll do it. I'll see how close I can yeah, get. Uh, Honestly, I... I've done something similar before because I, I work on a fair amount of political stuff and a lot of the uh, disclaimers and increasingly the VOs <laughs> are recorded by the candidates on their iPhones out in the world and then they just get sent to me uh, sounding like iPhone audio. And I've used, uh, I've definitely tried to match an iPhone recording against a proper VO recording done in the booth. It can't get it all the way there, but it certainly helps it. I recently had a uh, situation where I was mixing an uh, investigative journalism piece and the reporter had, in the narration, misspoke. And the legal department was, you, you can't say that, but 
the reporter was had already been dispatched to Sochi to do a, a news piece that hasn't aired yet on the upcoming Olympics, and uh, he had to record it on his iPhone and send it in. And the whole rest of the piece's narration was recorded in a booth on a beautiful mic. Right. And then there's this dog's ass of a line in there. And unfortunately, <laughs> the mix room I was in did not have ozone. So it uh, that would have been very useful because it was ugly as sin. <laughs> you know what? But, I've, I've been in that situation. It, it's, if, it's, if it's ugly, it's, it's, uh, it's going to stay ugly. That's just yeah, exactly. Exactly. I feel like my eyes have been opened to what you can do, but at the same time, when I think of it on a practical level, I'll say this. I'm not going to sit and try and take a bunch of mics that I own and with EQ, match them to a bunch of mics that I don't own. And on a practical level, the way that I was able to achieve results so well was because I had these exact mics right next to each other and I was matching them off of the exact performance. Yeah. When I was doing it off of the pink noise, it was still good, but it wasn't as good. And really the thing that I was trying to prove was the extent to which you can get there with, with EQ given perfect circumstances. But in a practical sense, if you have both mics, you're just going to put up the mic that you like the sound of anyway. Yeah. And it's also dangerous to be recording something, thinking in your mind, I'm going to make it sound this other way later in post. Like you want to try and get the best you can in the first shot anyway. Right. Yeah. You know, they talk about certain mics being able to take EQ well. Given what we did with this 57, I feel like that's a difficult thing to use to differentiate one mic from the other. Yeah, that might be getting a little an outdated way of thinking now with the technology we have. Yeah, because the 57, even when it was EQ'd, still had very compressed dynamic range compared to the Sheps. And I think that's a lot of what the Sheps really does bring to the table is how quickly it reacts to transients. And that's why people feel it's super realistic. Mm -hmm. Well, and also the headroom that it can give you, like your settings on the uh, preamp were so drastically different. They were dramatically different. Yeah. yeah. So it gives you options just off the start by not having to crank everything. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So if you have, so there's more than just the sound that the, the uh, there's more things in play than just the EQ curve you can put on later. When you think of the technology that I had to really push to get that 57 sounding like the Sheps, I had a 57 into a very expensive John Hardy M1, which is a super clean that probably preamp. Probably as much of the difference as anything. Yeah, <laughs> running straight into Pro Tools and then bouncing it in through a through a ridiculous EQ curve inside of Ozone to get it there. But man, on that voice track and on that on that acoustic track, I think we got it there. It's pretty amazing. Well, thanks a lot for doing that test. That really opened my eyes. Yeah. Um, any other tests anyone wants me to uh, to run, let's do them. Especially anything that's creative and off-center and weird. Those are my favorites. <laughs> so, Renee, you have a story about a recent interaction with Pluralize that you going to tell us about? So Pluralize is a piece of software out there in the video world that will take reference audio on a on any uh, video format and take proper audio that was recorded dual system on some other format and sync them up, right? So meaning like camera mic, you get you shoot, shoot with your shitty camera mic, load that into the system and then you take the tracks from the field recordist and then the computer automatically syncs them up based on the sound from the tape. Right. Based yeah. purely on analysis of the audio. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, it's, it's been a big deal for a few years ever since everyone started shooting on DSLRs. For sure. Because DSLRs suck for recording audio and they also don't have any time code option. So an algorithmic way to put things back in sync was a big deal. I had some misconceptions about the way that Pluralize works. So I had a project come in where it was a reality style sales pitch thing, right? So I had five girls in a room talking to each other as though they were, um, as though they were having a party. And so they were speaking over each other and they were each individually loved and the whole thing. And I had all of the source audio. I had all of this beautiful split out loves that sounded great. The video editor ignored all of the source audio and cut the entire edit with the camera audio, which was a mix of three girls on the left and two girls on the right. It was a live mix, so it was obviously not perfect. And so what I was, as I'm sitting here looking at this and holding my head in my hands going, I have all of this perfect audio and none of it's in sync. And you obviously don't have the budget for me to sit here and hand sync every edit. I said, well, maybe Pluralize can do it because maybe Pluralize can just analyze it and put it together, right? And I had never worked with Pluralize before. And so what I did was we went and bought it because we figured, hey, we need to have it in the house anyway just so that we can understand it. The The way that it works is it's it's very cool, but you have to follow the workflow or else it won't do you any good. So if you're in a situation where someone has done an edit and you have the source audio, Pluralize will not help you. And the reason it will not help you is because Pluralize will not edit the audio. In other words, it won't try and detect a cut. If you have a 10-minute chunk of audio and you have 15 five-second uh, clips from that chunk of the, of the same shot that made it into the edit, it'll find the first one and it'll lay that 10-minute chunk of audio against the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So it won't trim it at all. And it's, it just, it doesn't even have that ability. So I, I did kind of want to put that out there so that other people don't try and do what I did, which was to try and fix someone else's mistake after the fact using that technology. Because it doesn't work that way. The way you have to use Pluralize is you have to resync all your clips before you do the edit. Mm-hmm. Um, if, once you've edited it, you're screwed. So I wanted to put that out there. It's brilliant software if you use it the right way. I wish Pro Tools had some sort of algorithmic matching function like that. I don't understand why it doesn't. I think that would be genius if it did, where I could just do something like that inside of Pro Tools that could edit regions and do that type of thing. But alas, it's not the case. Um, so, hey, Digi, go make that for me. Thanks. Or Avid. Patents be damned. Just just go steal Pluralize. <laughs> <laughs> I think the software patent industry is jacked up anyway. This yeah, and then that's a whole other topic. Yeah, they need to start that over from scratch. So, anyways, yeah, any... I don't actually have any pluralized experience because in the animation world, it's not really useful very, very often. Right. So, uh, I although I have done location recording that I know was pluralized was used, but uh, I was off the project after the shoot, so I didn't. Uh, I never heard anyone complain about it, so I assume it worked well. It's, it's really great software if you use it the right way, and it is entirely inflexible if you're trying to use it for, for a way in which it was not intended. I know that there was one, uh, a friend of mine had an issue where they were shooting on a very windy day, and the crappy camera mic, all it got was... <laughs> yeah. 
So uh, it did not work in that situation because it wasn't getting the audio properly on the source tape. Well, the, you know, the best practice with that is to actually send a mix to camera, even if it's DSLR, so that it has something really good to reference against. Yeah, obviously that would be ideal, but sometimes that's not available. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So that's my pluralized story. There you go. <laughs> Uh, thanks to everyone who listens and participates in this show. Thanks to Tim for jumping on with me. Uh, you can follow the show at the Tonebenders and go to tonebenders.net to leave a comment. Also check us out at facebook.com slash tonebenderspodcast. We'll see you guys next time. See ya. Thanks for listening to Tonebenders. Find us online at tonebenders.net where you can see our archives and leave a comment or a tip. If you listen on iTunes, please write us a review while you're there. Follow us on Twitter at the Tonebenders or email us at dc, timothy, or renee at tonebenders.net. Yeah.